Well, on this day 500 years ago, a man named Martin Luther, about this time of the day, a Catholic priest, a professor, um, uh, teaching the Bible to students in Wittenberg, uh, northern Germany, uh, many would say arguably changed the world. There's a bit of a mugshot up there of him. I hope that uh, gives him kind of good credit. But 500 years ago, about 520 miles from this place, Luther took out a hammer and nailed what was known as his 95 Theses uh, to the door of that church. It, essentially, it was a list of questions for debate. These 95 Theses voiced numerous concerns that Luther had for the Catholic Church, of which he was part. Uh, many others were involved in, uh, in what we now know as the Reformation. Uh, I guess the seedbed was... The, kind of began in this country with a man called John Wycliffe over a hundred years earlier. He'd shared some of Luther's concerns. Wycliffe wanted everyone to be able to understand the great news of the Lord Jesus Christ, the gospel. And so he translated the Bible into English and it caused mass controversy. He was hated by the Catholic Church. He was tracked down and eventually killed. Now, as I said, Wycliffe, I, I suppose, laid the seedbed in this country, but Like the reformers, he wanted the Bible to be accessible to all because they understood the Bible for what it was. It was the word of God. They saw in the church of the day, the Catholic church, a a continued distorting of God's word. And as Luther studied the Bible, particularly the book of Romans, the more he did, the more he saw that the Catholic church had moved so far that he had to do something. That he had to say something. And so Luther preached and he wrote and he argued. And eventually on October the 31st, 1517, he nailed his 95 Theses, these questions, to a small church door. And thus started the Reformation. And arguably changed the world. It was not alone. Of course, there were others like Zwingli and Calvin down in Geneva at the time. Heroes, uh, certainly you'll have heard me rattle on about them over the years. Uh, Heroes in this country, people like Cranmer and Latimer and Ridley and many, many others who sought to reform the church away from Catholic doctrines and practices. Now, we haven't got time to go into detail. Uh, Neil's given a little summary at the beginning about how the Reformation happened, particularly uh, in this country. It was very complicated in many, many ways. But what they argued for and what they achieved has been summarised. They've been prayed, actually, already, and Neil mentioned them as well. Summarised in five statements. Five, in a sense, what they're called solas. Solar meaning alone. Five biblical priorities. They, these were the, like the five foundational rallying cries of the Protestant reformers. Then there's the five solos. The first one being sola scriptura. Scripture alone. See, the Catholic Church had taught that the foundation of their faith was found in a combination of the Bible on one hand, but on the other hand, the sacred church tradition. And Luther and the reformers saw this as a distortion and they showed that our faith comes alone from the inspired God-breathed word of God, um, the Bible, that is. So the scripture, scripture alone. The second solo was that of a solo gracia, grace alone. The Catholic Church, you see, had taught that we are saved again, a combination of, of God's grace, that is his unmerited kindness, but also that we can accumulate Merit before God through our own good works and through other works of the church as well. 
Again, the reformers brought us back to God's word and they said, Solo gratia, grace alone. The Bible is clear that we are saved by grace alone, not by works so that no one can boast, Ephesians tells us. So solo fide, faith alone. The Catholic Church thought that we are justified by faith. That is that we are made right before God, but also by the works that we produce. And the reformers responded, no, we are justified by faith alone. And it was very much, that was the heart of, uh, of Luther's investigations into Romans 1 and, and f- further through Romans. And he said, no, there's, there's something wrong here. And the reformers brought us back to God's word to show us that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone. And also, fourthly, um, solus Christus, in Christ alone. See, the Catholic Church again had combined, they said, they said that we are saved by the merits of Christ. Yes, that's what we see in the Bible. But we're also saved by the, the merits of the saints. Those that they have beatified, the Pope have beatified. They also taught that we approach God through Christ, as the Bible tells us, but also through Mary and the saints as well. They pray and intercede for us. And the reformers responded, no. We are saved by the merits of Christ alone. And we come to God in prayer in Christ alone, as Hebrews 10 shows us, that we have confidence that we can approach God. How? Through Jesus' blood alone. And all of this summarised in the end, solideo gloria, to the glory of God alone. The Catholic Church, you see, had taught a, what they, we now understand as a kind of a theology of glory, which gave glory uh, for salvation to Christ, but also, again, they spread it out. They said, no, glory must go to Mary, and glory must go to the saints, but also glory must go to the individual who is saved as well. And the reformers rightly responded as they turned back to God's word, showing us that the only true gospel is that we give glory to God alone for everything. You see, the reformers understood that what the Catholic Church had done, they, they described it in this way. They said it was a perversion, a perversion of God's word. And they brought people humbly, lovingly back to God's word. And it literally changed the world. How? Well, let me just give you a bit of an insight. How, If you were to come to a post-Reformation church, what would it look at in any different way to, to previously? Well, you now went to church and you could understand what was being said. Because previously the priest would have stood uh, looking away from the congregation, speaking to the front where the altar would have been, and he would have spoken in Latin, and Latin alone, and no one would have understood. Well, very few would have understood. Uh, Post-Reformation Church, you'd now be able to sing hymns in a language, again, that you would be able to understand, with tunes that were accessible for that time, that stirred your heart rather than just chanting in Latin. You can now go to church and you would see up front a pastor... A minister of the gospel, not a priest. Faithful pastors were were no no longer trying to impart grace or effect salvation in a way. The job of the pastor, the minister, is is simply to open up God's word and, and to merely lift the eyes of the congregation to see the glories that they have and they know in Christ and in Christ alone. You can now go to church and you can hear expository preaching. One of, probably the greatest if, if like, change of the church of the time 
was that now ministers would open up God's word and verse by verse would teach through a book of the Bible. I mean, sometimes they would have preached five times a week for an hour each time. It's okay, don't panic, we're not going there. Uh, but you, an hour, five times a week. Calvin said, John Calvin, the church cannot be brought to soundness or continue in a good state except by the means of the preaching of the word. And he knew no other way apart from verse by verse through a book. These were the radical changes that reformed the church and it led to an explosion of growth but also an explosion and an expansion as well to what we see today. The reformed church, that is not the, the reformed Protestant church, that is not the Catholic church, is still growing and still reaching the world and changing the world as more and more people submit their lives to the Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, for example, in China alone, there are now more Christians in China than there is in the population of the whole of the United Kingdom, despite it being so hostile, you know, hostile from the government there. Often persecuted as well, as well. We stand with them. As we stand with millions around the world, as we stand with the reformers who pointed us to the foundation of our faith is found in Scripture alone. That reveals that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. Now, as we've heard, many of the reformers died for their faith, particularly in this country, because, of course, uh, we flip-flop back and forth with various monarchs, and uh, Bloody Mary was called Bloody Mary for a reason. She killed many of the reformers. But many of those men and women died gladly because they knew that their efforts would, as Nicholas Ridley cried out, strapped to the back of his friend, being burnt at the stake in Oxford. He cried out knowing that his efforts would light a candle that could never be put out. And we are testimony to that being true. The reformers were brave and many of them incredibly intelligent men. They seemingly achieved so much, but we must remember that they and those that were in their churches were just like us in many ways. They came before God's word humbly and the spirit of God worked through that word and worked in their hearts. And they under God's sovereignty, well, they changed the world. Now, the timing of our passage today is absolutely wonderful, isn't it? God is great, isn't he? Because what we see here today is, if, if you like, Jesus' call to biblical thinking, loving compassion and urgent prayer followed by action. And that is exactly what the reformers did. They responded to Jesus and his call through his word. And the question will be for us today is, how will we? How will we respond? As you see on your outlines, very, three very quick points. A, a time for clear thinking, a time for loving compassion, a time for urgent prayer. If you knew amongst us today, it's been a, a little ride through uh, these two chapters in Matthew's Gospel, Matthew 8 and 9. Uh, it follows a section that many of you will know uh, called the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus' first great discourse or teaching narrative um, in, in chapters 5 to 7 of Matthew's Gospel. Jesus there had taught his message of the coming eternal kingdom of God and the crowds we saw were amazed with his authority as a teacher. Now chapters 8 and 9, what we've seen is simply a demonstration of that authority. 
And we've seen lots of things, haven't we? They show the arrival of Jesus as the king of God's eternal kingdom. He has authority over all things. Chapter 10 that will follow. We're not going to go there, but if you're interested. Chapter 10, Jesus then commissions his disciples to go out on his behalf to proclaim his arrival as the king of God's kingdom. Now, you might look at chapter 10 and you think, oh, well, some of that specifically applies to the disciples and therefore not to us. But, of course, the majority still applies to all of Jesus' followers. And these last verses of chapter 9 show us that if we are to go and proclaim Jesus as king, we must get our thinking and our actions right. Look at verse 35, just remind yourselves of it. Jesus went through all the towns and villages teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and illness. Firstly, you see, we need to get our thinking straight. It's a time for clear thinking. This is like the next verse is a, is a summary of what's been happening in the previous two chapters. And it really is a, a platform for what is to come as well. And flip back and you'll see what Jesus is doing and has been doing. Healing people from all sorts of sicknesses and illnesses. Calming storms, cleansing the demon possessed. Even the dead, the blind, the mute. They're not beyond the authority of Jesus. You see, there was a brief time in history when the physical effects of our rebellion against God were being reversed. Heaven, if you like, had come to earth. The king was here. And since Adam, uh, the first... Uh, had turned his back on God and thought he knew best. Humanity has continually felt the consequences of God's just and right anger, if you like. Judgment against humanity as a whole. And we feel that within creation, don't we? We see that in the world around us, the frustration. But here we see the king of God's kingdom has arrived. And for a brief moment, we get a glimpse. For three years, uh, we get... As Jesus bodily walked on this earth, it was like heaven was on earth. Nowhere and therefore no one seemed to be out of the gaze of Jesus. Look at it. He went through all the towns and villages. You see, his priority here, his thinking is clear. All needed to hear and receive the gospel that he was proclaiming. That entry into God's good eternal kingdom was being opened up to all who would trust the king. And that was him. That was him. Jesus was preaching and teaching that entry into the eternal kingdom of God would come through him alone. Solus Christus. As the reformers put it. It's a time for clear thinking. And we need to have that same conviction. That same vision, that same clarity of purpose that Jesus, the King, had. But we also need to be clear in our thinking so we don't end up with the wrong expectations for ourselves, but also of Jesus. Well, the demons were very clear, weren't they? Think back to chapter 8, verse 29. That they knew what Jesus had come to do. They, uh, they knew who he was. Chapter 8, 29 says this. What do you want from a son of God, the demons said. They, they shouted, have you come here to torture us before the appointed time? They knew, you see, with clarity, that there will be a day, the appointed time is the word used there. As we say in the Apostles' Creed, sometimes we say that kind of creedal statement at the beginning of church. Uh, we sometimes say, he will one day to come to judge the living and the dead. The demons got it. They saw Jesus 
And they saw that there was a day to come. But there they stood before Jesus and they see that the time is there before the appointed time. There was a time before the appointed time. And their thinking is clear. They knew that Jesus was going to come on one day to judge as the king of God's kingdom. It's something that we need to live in the light of. But we must also know that Jesus in his love for us has come as the king of that good eternal kingdom to invite us and to invite people to turn to him, to become part of his kingdom and therefore avoid his justice but only know his love. Jesus the king has arrived and we have to understand in what sense he has arrived. Oh, it's not the appointed time. It's not the final moments. So we need to stop walking around with our heads kind of low and ashamed, the king not knowing what's, what time we're in. Jesus has come, and he will one day finally come. And he has placed in our hearts, if we know him and put our faith in him, he's placed in our hearts a down payment of his spirit to make us ready for that final day. The appointed day. We need to get our thinking clear. We need to get our priorities in line with the king of the kingdom. Who we see in verse 35 went about all the towns and villages. Teaching in their synagogues, Preaching the good news. I wonder if we do that. It's a time for clear thinking. It's time for loving compassion. Look at verse 36. When he saw the crowds he had compassion on them. Because they were harassed and helpless. Like sheep without a shepherd. And that is, get the eyes of Jesus here. When he sees humanity, when he sees your friends, when he sees your colleagues, when he sees your neighbours, some of your family even, living and experiencing the effects of sin in the world, he has compassion. It's in total contrast, isn't it, to the Pharisees who had pointed the finger, had looked down their noses upon They were self-righteous. But rather Jesus stands here as the righteous one with all compassion. Rather than looking down with disdain from the comfortable saddle of his moral high horse, Jesus comes alongside, doesn't he? And he loves. And he has compassion. And literally that word for compassion is an extraordinary word. It, it, It comes basically from the word entrails. I'm sorry to mention that on a church on Sunday morning. Uh, But it's really from his gut. Right from deep inside of who he is, Jesus feels deeply as he looks out and sees the people. Why? Well, because he sees they are harassed and helpless. The reformers are a wonderful example in this. Yes, they fought for truth and faithfulness to God's word. But their undergirding motivation was for the people to hear the gospel. Their hearts went out to the people. Jesus has compassion here for the harassed and helpless people. But but look who Jesus is blaming. It's interesting, isn't it? It's the spiritual leaders who are on the radar of Jesus here. The, The people are sheep without a shepherd. Where they should have been lovingly led and protected, they'd only received the pointed finger of judgment. Very similar to the harsh judgment that fell upon the God's leaders uh, of God's people in Ezekiel 34. But Jesus stands in contrast to them here. He's the one who has compassion. 
The reformers saw the priests of the Catholic Church extorting money from people, distorting the word of God, undermining the work of Christ. The reformers saw the people, they were harassed, they were helpless, needing faithful shepherding. Don't remove yourself from this. It's hard to view people, isn't it, as harassed and helpless? When they dress in such lovely clothes, when they drive such lovely cars and, and live such kind of opulent lives as we do in this uh, part of the world. You know, when you see the, the, you know, the holiday pictures on, on Facebook or whatever, you know, you, when you see the lives that they lead, it's hard to view anyone, isn't it, as harassed and helpless. But we need the eyes of Christ, don't we? Our guts need to be turned over. As we see people around us who do not know Jesus as their Lord and Saviour. How should we respond to the spiritually harassed and helpless? We live in a, a kind of culture that loves to finger point, don't we? We love to look down our noses at others. We need compassion. We need to see people for who they are before Jesus. And we need that gut-wrenching compassion for those who have not been led as they ought to have been led. And we must lead them to Christ. There's utter moral confusion out there. In the terms of kind of Romans 1, it's like God has handed people over to their desires and they suffer the confusion and the consequences of that. But how we as Christians respond will be the mark of how we've responded ourselves to the gospel. How do you respond, you see, for example, when your colleagues, you know, and you know the kind of stuff that goes in your office, it's better than I do, in your workplaces. How do you respond when your colleagues, you know, maybe, you know, kind of fiddle their expenses or do something that you know that you, it just morally isn't right? How do you respond? How do you respond to, you know, when the culture at your office is to go out and just drink so much and do all these things and you know, how do you respond to that kind of thing? How do you respond with friends or flatmates, you know, they come back with, with someone and they've had way too much to drink. And, uh, how do you respond to all of these things? I know if you're a parent here, you know, you'll look at others and you see how they deal with their children, discipline and all these kind of things. And how do you respond to all of that? Do you point the judgmental finger? Do you sit on the high horse of your own making? Please no. We're to have gut-wrenching compassion. If they do not know Christ, they are harassed, they are helpless. They are sheep without a shepherd. Jesus calls us now, now is the time for a loving compassion. Of course, we must first get our thinking straight. That's the priority. Then we can begin to see people as Jesus sees people. Maybe as Jesus sees you. Oh, you may have the most lovely house. Oh, you may, may be in like, wonderful relationships and a great job, a stimulating social life. In the eyes of the world, you might be the envy of everyone. But Jesus is saying here, if you are a sheep without a shepherd, come to him. Come to Jesus. He's the good shepherd. And he will lead you and he will love you and he will care for you eternally. Or you may not feel or look harassed and helpless. 
But picture yourself before an all-powerful judge and, and you've got only your life as your defence. How are you going to stand? Please see your need and know that Jesus will receive you. And not with a judgmental pointed finger, but rather with compassion. If you're only willing to trust him. Well, compassion lastly leads to prayer and proclamation. We see that at the beginning of uh, verse 37, a, a time for urgent prayer. Look at verse 37. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. You see, for all that we see around us, for the, all the frustration and the sadness in this world, how should we respond? Notice there's no kind of little footnote that says, I'm an introvert, this doesn't apply. We love to play that one, don't we? Jesus shows compassion, but then calls us to pray. To pray to him, look at that, Jesus, the Lord of the harvest. And to pray for what? For workers. When do we pray? Well, when we pray, I guess many of us, we so often want God to supernaturally intervene, don't we? Have you ever prayed like that? Please, God, make sure all of my staff at, the, at work, please may they all come to me tomorrow and say, I'd really like to come to the carol service. We'll all walk to the carol service together and they'll all become Christians because you are God and you are sovereign. Amen. Isn't that amazing how we do that? Please note two things. Firstly, the need for workers. Secondly, note the assumption that Jesus makes. The harvest is plentiful. I don't know if you've ever dared to ask friends. Um, just probe into their life a little bit, one-on-one -on -one with them. Many people, if you actually spend time with them, and don't point the finger, but come to them in a compassionate way, for many, life doesn't make sense. People want to know more about what you believe. They may even recognise their need for a shepherd. People just don't want to be looked down upon and judged. And the sad truth is, the harvest is plentiful. Do you believe God's word? Well, if you do, listen to it. Know the truth. Out there, the harvest is plentiful. But the workers are few. There aren't enough humble, trained, committed workers to go out into harvest fields. Oh, sadly, too often Christians, and you may be guilty of this, I don't know. Too often Christians just sit around chatting about how strategically to reap the harvest. And they don't go out themselves. Or about how much they enjoyed church and how much they learnt and have stacked up in their mighty brains. They never get out there, though. I know nothing about harvesting. As you look at me, I'm an urbanite, and there you go. You know, I know nothing about farming whatsoever. But even a simpleton like me knows a harvest does not pick itself. There is plenty of harvest. We just have to be willing to go, don't we? The good shepherd Jesus asks us to pray. Pray that we throw out, literally drive out workers into the harvest field and we just got to ask the question why will you not go why will you not go firstly we need clear thinking well you have now so you've got no excuse there sorry secondly we need gut-wrenching compassion that's over to you 
How are you going to start viewing people? As Jesus views you, or are you just going to start pointing the finger? You start need to, you need to start seeing your neighbours as Jesus sees them. A sheep without a shepherd. And thirdly, we need urgent prayer. We need to pray, and we need to pray, and we need to pray again. If you live in this area, you need to look around the people. You may not even know their names. Find out their names. Bake them a cake. Go and see them. Get their names. Put them in a note on your phone and pray for them. Just get on with it. And you need to ask the Lord of the harvest to get you out into the harvest field as a worker for Christ. Can you imagine if Martin Luther, 500 years ago, on this day, he finishes 95 theses, probably about six in the morning, over breakfast, and he went, oh, that's a good bit of thinking. And then he rolled his scroll up again and put it in his desk. Can you imagine if still today you could go to Wittenberg and you could go into his study, and I don't know if it's true, but you know, go into his study and open up a drawer and find out his 95 theses, and they're still there. And he wasn't willing to go any further. Imagine if he had no compassion for the people. Imagine that he, would, he wouldn't pray and trust God, that he would go out and, and take a very risky stand. Imagine if he never drove that nail into the door of Wittenberg Castle. But he did. And God gave him everything that he needed. And it changed the world. There's a time for clear thinking, a time for loving compassion, a time for urgent prayer. I wonder, are we willing, are you willing to be the worker, to be sent out? Because the harvest fields are plentiful, but the workers are few. What are you afraid of? What is getting in the way of you going out there and speaking about Jesus? Why do you not trust Jesus with this? The harvest is plentiful, but the workers of you ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. We should be saying right now, let's go. Let's go. Let's pray as we close. <clears throat> Words of a, a prayer of Martin Luther. I cannot choose but adhere to the word of God, which has possession of my conscience. Nor can I possibly, nor will I even make any recantation, since it neither safe nor honest to act contrary to conscience. Here I stand. I cannot do otherwise, so help me God. So Lord God and Heavenly Father, I pray that that is true for us. Each one of us here today, soli Deo Gloria, to the glory of God alone. Amen.